Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. Today happens to be show number 21 and we're going to still be working in chapter 10 which deals with taxation of property uh, or real estate uh, taxes that are associated with real estate and what we talked about the last time that we met were property taxes and we talked about the different types of property taxes. We discussed the fact that property taxes are primarily collected by the county or by the city for the purposes of funding and financing things like uh, the police department, uh, the fire department, the school district, the water district. So that's basically what property taxes are used for. The next thing that we wanted to talk about today is something called special assessments. And I believe we left off talking about the initial part of the uh, special assessments and I'm going to take a minute now and I'm going to move over in a second here to my uh, friendly document camera and uh, the two acts that I wanted to mention to you is first of all there's an improvement bond act of 1915 and there's another act that we're going to talk about really quickly called the Melarus and let me just explain for a minute what we're talking about when we talk about the improvement bond act the concept is, is that when the county or the city, or in the, in the case of, let's say, the county is collecting property taxes, historically, for the last probably 20 or 30 years, they have collected just about enough money to keep the government running. They really don't have any excess money that they can use to build new streets, new curbs, new gutters, new water mains, or whatever. So consequently, most of the money, if they're doing any kind of improvements on the streets or in, in, in the county, are just to keep things the way they are. They don't have the money to put in streets for the new subdivisions. So, or, or for, for example, if people want to put uh, street lights in or so, some other thing that the community thinks that they need. So consequently, there has to be another method to raise funds. And one of them happens to be this Improvement Bond Act in 1915. And the concept behind this is that you may very well be living in a community, and within that community, as an example, you may feel that, uh, you know, that we maybe need better street lighting. Maybe uh, people are finding that it's a very dangerous area, not because they have to be worried about being robbed or held up or anything, but it's just because it's so dark that it makes it very dangerous for people to walk on the street at night or go out and walk their dog or anything like that and say so for example the whole neighborhood may decide to get together and they maybe initially call the county up and they say you know we would really like to have you guys come down and put some street lights up and the county turns around and says you know that would be a great idea except we don't have any money to do that so consequently what they will do is they may form what we call a district or a special assessment district the concept, if you will, of the special assessment district would be where all of the people in that district would agree that they wanted those lights or the majority would agree. And then what they would do is they would form groups or committees and go out and start to raise through the use of a bond, selling bonds, uh, not, and I'm talking about through things like the stock market, we're raising funds or money. And that money would be brought in to that special assessment district and that money would be used specifically to go and put the street lights in. Now you may ask, well, where's the money going to come to pay for the bond? Well, what would happen is each homeowner 
would be assessed a certain amount of money. And as the act talks about, one of the things might be based on the street frontage that they have uh, on the front of or how, how much property they have that is, is on the street, facing the street. That might be the proportional share that they're going to pay. And they would pay so much per month on this street assessment bond. And they would continue to pay for this until it was completely paid off. Or maybe in some cases the house might be sold and they may decide the new owner may can't come in and decide, you know what, the, what's left on the bond is really not that much. What I'm going to do is I'll go ahead and borrow that money when I buy the house and I'll go ahead and pay that bond off. But again, that's for a special assessment. It's to raise money for things that normally the county or the city property taxes can't cover. That's why we do that. The next one that they talk about in here, if you will, is something called Melarus. And Melarus is something that you're going to see in, uh, actually, in reality, if you look in your book on page, and I'll pull this page up here, if you look on this page, which is 389, you'll see a, a lot more of a description of what Melarus is. But just to kind of let you know what this involves is that when a developer or a builder I would say maybe a developer, somebody that's going to develop the land, when they decide that they're going to develop this land and with the concept in mind that they're going to be building houses and then those houses are going to be put on the market and sold, again, they go down to the county and they say, you know what, we, need, you know, we would like to have you put some streets and gutter or streets, curbs and gutters in for us or maybe a fire department or something else or parks. And the county turns around and says, well, you know, we don't have enough money to do that. So consequently, what they're going to do is they're going to turn around and say, you know what, same thing. This is an ability for the developer to have a bond issue and to raise funds to put those streets, curbs, and gutters in. And basically, what you may or may find out or may, you may find out that in some cases, if you're in, in the Sacramento area, you may actually never really run into this. But if you're in the outlying areas, say in Placer County or El Dorado County, and you go out to a brand new subdivision, you may very well find out that that subdivision is going to have, the new owners are going to have to pay, for example, they're going to have to pay their mortgage. Like, for example, where I happen to live right now, I live in a place called uh, Serrano up in El Dorado Hills. So in my particular case, I have Melarus. What happens is, is when I get ready to pay my monthly mortgage, I may pay my principal and my interest. I pay for my taxes. I pay for my... Uh, insurance, and I also have, as part of my payment, Melarus that I pay for. And uh, that, again, is to take care of the streets, curbs, gutters, all of those off-site improvements that were made prior to the construction of the brand-new subdivision. So I'm responsible for paying that. I also have to pay for something else, which, on top of that, call homeowners dues. So, in other words, there can be a lot of different things that are involved that you have to make as a monthly payment, but Melarus is something that you're finding on a lot of new subdivisions. And what they'll do is actually when they get ready to sell some of these uh, lots, if they don't have Melarus on it, which means that the streets and all those things were in there prior, you know, the builders building on some lots that were put in a long time ago, so there was no requirement to come in and put the new streets in, you'll see that the people that are selling the property will actually put a statement on the, on the flyers when they get ready to sell the house, and they'll say something like, no Melarus required, or no Melarus, no homeowners dues. And some people will look at that as a benefit, saying, you know what, I move in here, could buy the same exact house in two different locations. One's going to have, you know, Melarus to the tune of three or $400 a month, and the other one doesn't. And that might be a big advantage why you would want to buy a house in one area versus another area. 
So again, you can read about that here in the book, and this pretty well covers how this works and how it operates, okay? So the next thing that I'm going to do is go back to this page here and talk about the next tax that we discussed the last time. And this is something called the documentary transfer tax that has to be paid when a house is sold. And what this involves is that this is a fee that is collected by the county or it's collected by the county when the document is recorded. And what it's based on, how the fee, what the fee is based on, is based on the equity that is transferred from one person to another. And let me give you an example. If I happen to have a house, and I'll make the math very simple so I can do it kind of in my head. If I happen to have a house that I'm selling for $100,000 and nobody is assuming any loans, the brand new buyer is going out and getting a brand new loan, and they're buying my house <clears throat> and paying off my existing loans, then the Melarus is going to be based on $0.55 cents per $500 transferred or $1.10 or per thousand. So in that particular case, since they're getting a brand new loan and paying off the existing loan, I will end up, or the buyer will end up paying a fee of $110 for the transfer of that property. Conversely, if they say, for example, they come in and they buy my property and for whatever reason they decide that the loan that I have on it, my existing loans, are very attractive. And the reason why they may want to do that is because, remember, interest rates are going up right now. And you may find out that uh, the loan that you got uh, possibly, uh, I don't know, two, three years ago was maybe a fixed rate loan and the interest rate was maybe at five and a half percent it's fairly attractive you're getting ready to sell a property and maybe somebody wants to assume that loan so consequently if the loan was say for example fifty thousand dollars what would happen is the documentary transfer tax stamps are based on the uh, on the amount that your the equity if you will that are being transferred so in that particular case you'd have where the new buyer is assuming an existing loan of fifty thousand dollars and they're getting a new loan for the other 50000 so they would actually pay that documentary transfer tax stamps would only be based on the $50,000 that was transferred. So in that case, it would be $55. That's what would have to be paid. It's a small amount, but it's a fee that's collected by the county. Okay, so that kind of takes care of that. The next thing that we want to just mention in passing is that Property, you can also have where property can have taxes that are due in two different situations. And again, this is something where you're going to want, if you have a client that is getting ready, ready and wants to know uh, that they're getting ready to sell a property or transfer a property, and maybe the property happens to be where they want to transfer it from themselves to their son, or they want to give it to their daughter, Okay, the concept that we want to get here that's on this page is the fact there is something called a gift tax. Now, how much of a gift tax this person may have to pay is totally dependent upon something that your accountant or their accountant is going to calculate. It's going to be different for each individual. You can't say to somebody, listen, John last year did something very similar to what you want to do, and he had to pay this amount of money. You can't do that. You actually have to sit down with your accountant, go through your income tax statements, where you're standing, and figure out what that gift tax would be. The other kind of a tax that they talk about on here that you may need to be aware of is something called an estate tax. And you're going to find out that this tax doesn't necessarily kick in until the estate gets to be fairly large, but it's another one of those consequences that people need to be concerned about. 
Now, you as a real estate agent, where you would be concerned about these issues would be, for example, if somebody decided to sell a house and they called you up to list the house for sale. And maybe what it is, maybe the person that's called you is somebody that's been like the executor of an estate. Remember that an executor is somebody that has been appointed by the person that died to take care of all their, uh, you know, to make sure their will is probated correctly and make sure that all the property is distributed to whoever they want it distributed to. So that person may call you up and say, excuse me, could you come out and maybe do a comparative market analysis on my property. And then as a result of that, you're going to find out that, listen, this person that's selling this property is the executor for the estate. It, the, it, maybe the property has been left to two or three people, and you're the one that's going to be responsible for selling it. That's where you would come into it. And so consequently, what we want to do is make you aware of the fact that they may, depending, again, upon the size of their estate, and this is another one of those calculations that has to be done by their accountant and by their attorney, there can be either none or maybe some significant impact in the, far, in, in the sense of estate taxes. So again, we just want to make you aware of that so that you know that this exists, that people just don't die and get property without having any kind of co uh, tax consequences at all. So the next thing after that that we want to talk about, moving along, is something called income taxes on property. Income taxes. Now, one thing that we want to make darn sure of is that there's a couple things. Uh, first of all, realize that there is a difference between California income taxes and federal income taxes. There are differences. In some cases, those, some cases, things may appear to be exactly the same, and in some cases, there can be significant differences. Again, this is an issue... You know, like when I get ready to sell a property or buy a property or at the end of the year I call my accountant and I get this assistance, I highly recommend that you have an accountant that you work with because they're keeping up on all the laws and it doesn't take a lot to just call them up. And, uh, you know, in most cases they usually don't even, if you, don't ha you have a fairly small question, they'll answer your question and maybe won't even charge you any fees or anything at all for it. But it's important that you have that kind of advice. But what this is trying to do is just to show you in a small little picture that there is a difference between the two different uh, taxing entities, if you will. And what they're doing here is they're saying, for example, the state does not tax Social Security benefits. That's important, okay, where the feds do. That the state has no capital gains rate. So what that means is, is that if you get ready to sell a piece of property that you've owned for a long period of time, and you're going to pay federal taxes on it, there's something called the capital gains rate, which can be significantly lower than your ordinary income tax rate, whereas the state does not have a capital gains tax rate. The state does not allow tax breaks for IRA plans, simple. And the state does not uh, tax lottery winnings, okay? The only point that we're trying to emphasize here is that don't look at the fact of what the feds are doing and think that the state does the same thing. There are differences. Okay, now the key thing when you're dealing with real property that you kind of want to keep in mind is that there is a difference between property when you're talking about whether it is a personal residence that you live in or it's an investment piece of property. So just as an example, if we just take the things that you can take off your income taxes every year on your own personal residence, in other words, you go to your accountant at the end of the year 
and the accountant says, okay, give me these tax bills, the concept there is that these are things that can be deducted from your taxable income. Okay, so some of those things that can be deducted are, for example, mortgage interest on loans. And that means on first deeds of trust, second deeds of trust, third deeds of trust, those loans, that interest can be deducted. Not your full monthly payment, it's the interest that you're paying. The second thing that can be deducted is your property taxes. So those are something that can be deducted. The third thing that you want to keep in mind is prepayment penalties. Prepayment penalties means that you have gotten a loan against a piece of property, and what's ended up happening is that uh, the lender, when they made the loan to you, said, by the way, if you pay this off in full before the end of three years, you're going to have a penalty you're going to pay us. Let me tell you why we have the penalty and then tell you how it works. Typically, where you'll see prepayment penalties in today's market is on second loans. Typically, I'm talking about things like lines of credit, equity lines of credit. So when you go down to Wells Fargo Bank or Bank of America and you're standing in line ready to make a deposit or maybe you're at the supermarket and you're looking over there and you see the Wells Fargo sign and they say, hey, listen, here's loans. We have equity loans and there's no points, no appraisal fee, no application fee, and they have no fees, no fees, no fees. Keep in mind that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Something is going on. They're not just doing this out of their, uh, you know, just because they want to be nice guys. There's some reason why they're doing this, and they have to have some way of paying for those fees. So what will happen is when you get those equity lines of credit, what will happen is you will turn around and find out when you sign that document, all of those fees, the reason why the, the lender is now charging those fees is because they're hoping that you're going to get that loan and be making payments for uh, so many years. And during those years, you're gonna be, they're going to be able to recapture those costs, those costs that they've, refront, uh, that they've fronted, such as the application fee, the, uh, the appraisal fee, the uh, credit check fee, all those kinds of fees. Now, the concept is, is that if you lead in a really little fine print, it'll say, by the way, if you pay this beforehand, if you pay it off beforehand, what's going to end up happening is we're going to charge you some kind of fee. And typically, it might be, if you did it right away, it might be something like six months' worth of interest on that particular loan. So what you're going to want to do, and also that's normally prorated. So usually if it's, say, for example, they say, okay, we can check, we can uh, charge you a prepayment penalty for the first three years, You'll find out they may charge you the full fee for the first year, maybe two-thirds of the fee for the second year, and one-third of the fee for the third year. Okay, so it'll go down as the time goes by. But those are things that you want to know about. Those prepayment penalties, by the way, are tax deductible. Another thing that they, uh, I don't see them have listed in here, but it is important for you to know is the fact that when you get a loan, and uh, when you get that loan on the property, if you pay points, and you pay them up front to get the loan, then they are deductible in the year that you get the loan. Now, what's important about this is that you want to, again, make sure you talk to your accountant. This is where you don't go in and say, oh, by the way, yes, I'll pay the points, include them in the loan. If you include the points in the loan, that means that those, lo that those points can be written off only at a certain percentage each year. So if the loan is for 30 years, you're going to write off 130th of it every year. If you pay the fees up front, in other words, if you walk in there with a check and the check says this is to pay the points, and I'm going to pay them all right now. I'm not financing them, I'm paying them all. In other words, I got this out of my bank account and here's the check. 
then that can be deducted in that year. But very important that you make sure that that's really clear what's going on. But that's on a personal residence. That means a place where you live in with your family. That's what's critical about this. It's not a place that you rent out. It's a place that you live in. Now, the rules are different if you are dealing with property in which you are, um, you are dealing with income-producing property. This happens to be on this page. And what we want to talk about on income-producing property, this means property that you own or you have bought and you have, maybe you lived in it and then you converted it to a rental piece of property. But this is property that you're renting out to somebody else. Now, the things that you can deduct, for example, is the mortgage interest. So that's the same as on a personal residence. You can deduct the mortgage interest. The second thing that you can deduct, again, is the property taxes. You can do that. The third thing you can deduct, again, is the prepayment penalties, which is the same that we had before. The fourth thing that you can deduct is something called operating expenses. Now, let me make sure I'm very clear on what I mean by operating expenses. Operating expenses mean things that you use to operate that structure on a yearly basis. For example, an operating expense would be something like fire insurance, where you're paying for that. It might be something where, in, like in cases I've had, where I pay the water bill. I'll say to the tenants, listen, I do not want the lawn to burn up. I want it to stay okay. So consequently, I will set the watering meter, and I will pay the water bill. And the reason why I may do that is because maybe the lawn to put in and all that work cost me ten, fifteen thousand $15,000, and I don't want to not have the lawn stay up to, you know, stay in good condition. And so what I'll do is I'll say, I'll pay for the water bill. That water bill is tax deductible to me. Another thing that is tax deductible now is, is things that I, in which I do repair work. So, for example, if I go over and uh, uh, say the faucet's leaking and I replace one of the seals in the faucet so, you know, to stop it, one of the O-rings, that happens to be a repair. If I do small things, like the tenant calls me up and says something like, oh, by the way, the garbage disposal, which is maybe a $60 or $70 item, that quit, uh, that needs to be replaced, that's an expense. The, uh, if somebody calls me up and says, by the way, the heating system's not working or the air conditioning system's not working, and somebody comes out and repairs it, doesn't replace it, but repairs it, that's an expense. If the roof leaks and I go up and I hire a roofer and they come over and they charge me maybe $500 to fix some tiles that blew off the roof or some shingles that blew off the roof, that's an expense. Now, the reason why I'm emphasizing things that are expenses, those are things that can be written off in the year in which they were expended that year. So, for example, this year if I have, if one of my tenants calls me up and says, listen, the roof's leaking, I hired somebody, they fix the uh, fix the tile on the roof, replace a couple tiles, it's five, six hundred dollars, that just, I just happen to be an expense, I can write it off this year. Now that is totally different than if I replace the roof. If I replace the roof, it is not an expense, it's a capital expenditure. And so when I start replacing things like a roof, in other words, completely rip the roof off and put a new roof on, or I completely tear the heating system out and put a new one in, what that means is I cannot write off that expense all in one year. So if I had a home, for example, in which the roof was leaking and maybe the roofer turned around to me and said, you know what, Pat, I've been out here now every single year for the last, uh, 
I don't know, five years, and every year I keep replacing tiles here and tiles there. And you know what? I'm going to be honest with you, Pat. I, you know, hey, I, I really like your business. It really, you know, it's really great. In fact, all that money you're paying me, I use that. In fact, I use that to pay for my vacation, my fishing trips on weekends. It's really great. But if I really want to be honest with you, you, you need a new roof. That roof is just going to be one year after the next, after the next, and me just replacing this stuff. And if you step back and take a look at it, it's starting to look like a, a bunch of patchwork up there, and it's not looking very good. And so after I talk to the roofer for a while, you know, he may say, you know, I ask him, well, what's it going to cost to replace the roof? And he tells me, I say, okay, I'm going to bite the bolt, and I'm going to replace the roof. And he's, maybe he gives me a price of $10,000. And I may be sitting there going, wow, $10,000, I can write that all off this year. And then I call my, my tax accountant, which I normally do, and he turns around and says, no, Pat, you can't do that. You're going to have to capitalize that. What that essentially means when I capitalize it is I have to take that entire $10,000, I have to divide that by 27 and a half years. That tells me how much I can write off per year that adds to the value of the property, and then that then I can write that off in increments or in proportions of what that would be over those 27 years. So I can't write it off all in one year. So things such as major work that's done like roof repair, heating and air conditioning systems, uh, if I replace carpeting in the house. If I go in and I replace one room, that's one thing, you know, one small bedroom. If I go in and replace all the carpeting, I've got to capitalize that. If I put new floors in the house, I've got to capitalize that. If I rip out the kitchen and put a new kitchen, I've got to capitalize that. So you want to keep track of what that is, and you want to keep track of all those expenditures because when you sit down with your accountant, they're going to need all of that stuff to figure out how to, you know, whether it's an expense or it's a capital item, and then how to handle it and how to treat it. Okay? The other thing is that the last thing that they list here is something called depreciation of improvements. And again, like I just went through that whole scenario of replacing the roof, what this essentially, this depreciation means is this, and I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible. First of all, the concept of depreciation from a tax standpoint or an internal revenue standpoint is the fact that they're saying, you know what, if you buy a house and the house is brand new, brand spanking new, and let's say you live in that house or you rent that house out for, say, 30 years. And if you don't do any work on that house for 30 years, what's going to happen is, is it's going to fall apart. It's, you know, it's going to kind of, you know, the roof will finally end up leaking within that period of time. The siding will fall off. The kitchen won't work anymore. In other words, things are going to go wrong. The problem is, is trying to figure out how to account for that. You know, we just can't walk out there and look at the roof every year and go, well, that looks like maybe it's got another 10 years left, and it's very hard to do that. We have to have some way that we can do it easily. So what the Internal Revenue Service has essentially said to us is that whenever we buy something, and we're talking specifically now about residential rental-type property, okay, there are different types of depreciation depending upon how the property is used in business, but if we're talking about a rental piece of property, what they say is they say once you put it into production and you start renting it out, then you can depreciate it over 27 and a half years. And essentially what this is and the way it works is that when you acquire the property, you sit down with your accountant. You probably get from your real estate agent or your broker or the appraiser how much the property is worth. And what you're looking for is two figures. You're looking for how much the improvements are worth and how much the land is worth. So, for example, your appraiser may have come back and said the property is worth $500,000, and the, 
and they may say the land is worth $100,000 and the building is worth $400,000. You cannot depreciate the land. You can only depreciate the building. So what will happen is your accountant will take that information, which is the, land, uh, the, the improvements, they'll take that and divide it by 27 and a half years, and then they'll turn around and that, that is how much you can take off of your income taxes every year. And the way that works is like this. You take your total operating income that you receive from your renters. You take away from that the expenses you would normally have, like your interest expense, your utilities you pay, all those other expenses that you would make. Then finally, you take away your depreciation. And then normally, especially in the beginning, and especially in the Sacramento area, you're probably going to find out that you end up with a loss, at least a loss on paper. That loss that you have then can, can be carried over to what we call your ordinary income, the income that you're receiving from other places like your job, and that can be used to reduce your total taxable income. Okay, So just kind of keep that stuff in mind. That's something that you're going to need to talk to your accountant about when you start in, to invest in property, and your clients are going to be concerned about when they get ready to sell properties. Okay, the next thing that we want to make sure that we're talking, that we're covering here is, and if I can find it, um, okay, let me see. Here, see what page it's on. Okay, let me see which page it's on here. Deduction, property deduction, prepayment, deduction of interest. Okay, sale of, I'm going to just have to kind of catch up here, sale of your residence. Now, we want to keep in mind, yeah, this is where it is. We want to keep in mind that we're going to distinguish between the two types of property. If you're talking about the sale of your individual personal residence where you live with your family, there is a different set of tax rules applied to that versus the tax rules that are applied to an income-producing piece of property. So what does that mean? That means if I live on a street and uh, I live in a nice three-bedroom, two-bath house and uh, myself and my family live there, then when I get ready to sell that, one set of tax rules applies to that property how I handle that, how much taxes I have to do is based on the fact that it's a personal residence. Now, very well, I could have owned a piece of property across the street. In fact, the property could look just like my personal residence, but it's not my personal residence. It happens to be a rental piece of property. A totally different set of tax rules apply to that. So the first thing is, is you have to ask yourself for your client is, is this something that you live in, that's your own personal residence, or is this a rental property? Okay, so underneath a personal residence, Here's the thing. It says you have what we call a, a capital gains exclusion is for your client's best tax benefit. It says federal income tax laws allow a taxpayer to exclude up to $250,000 of the gain for each individual or $500,000 of married on the title. This benefit may only be used once every two years for a residence. There are certain rules that you have to follow in order to qualify for this tax deduction. And this is a really pretty nifty thing. What this essentially means is that you could have moved into the house and, hey, if it's gone up significantly in value in the last couple of years, when you get ready to sell that, and as long as you fit this set of rules, you can take all of that money and use it to either purchase a new house or, which really kind of neat about this, is that you could use maybe some of the money to buy a new house and some of the money to buy a car and you don't have an income tax consequence on it. Now there are a couple rules you have to follow in order to make this happen. 
And it says, uh, and I'm going to go through this. This is very important. It says, while the, uh, the law allows this deduction once every two years, your client must reside in the home for two out of the last five years to qualify. Now, you may say, well, that, where would that come into sense? You know, where, that, uh, how could that happen? It may mean where you move in. Military people are a good example. They may move into a house, live there for a year, all of a sudden, the person that's in the military gets a set of orders. They have to go someplace for two years. They decide for whatever reason that the family is going to go back and live with the, you know, the folks while they're overseas. Then they come back and they move back in the house. Maybe they get stationed back in the same place. So you have where somebody lives there, moves out for a while, and then moves back. But in the last five years, they have to have had that as their personal residence for the last two years. Very important. Um, in other words, if he or she lives in a home for a year, then rents out for three years, then they would have to move back into the house for another year to take advantage of the tax break. Any personal residence acquired from it? Okay, this is something else. 1031 exchange is another thing. Okay, the other thing that's really important here is that remember that if, that if you're talking about people being married, both people have to live in the residence during that period of time. And I'll give you an example where people may not think about this. Today, you have people that, you know, get married when they're young, they have children, and for whatever reason, they decide to get something called a divorce. They don't get along. And what ends up happening after they get divorced, maybe they're single for a while, and maybe after a few years, they decide, you know, while they're single, they go out and they buy their house, and they happen to meet somebody else that they have a house. And typically, when people get married again, what happens is, is usually they decide to move into one or the other's home. And so consequently, what will happen is, is maybe the husband turns around and says, you know, my new girlfriend or my new wife has a really nice house. I don't really have too decent of a house. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sell my house and I'm going to move in to this new house. And maybe after you move into the house, then you'll turn around and say, well, you know what? Now that I moved into the house, what we really realized fairly quickly is we need a bigger house. So we're going to sell this house. The thing is, is that Remember, if the husband has not lived in that house for two years, maybe the wife has lived there, or his girlfriend, who's now his wife, has lived there for five years, but the husband has to live there also for two years for them to be able to get that tax deduction or tax exclusion. Very important. Okay, so I think that that kind of takes care of this. Let me see if there's anything else on here that I need to talk about. I think... Okay. Now, the other thing that we need to talk about is something called the sale of real property. Now, the important thing about this is to remember what we're talking about here. Let me make sure because I want to. Okay. Okay, I'm not sure whether this is this part of it here, but the thing is, is that house that is a rental piece of property. When you sell that property, that property gets a totally different tax treatment than your personal residence does. What happens is underneath the circumstances when it comes to a rental piece of property, you are required at the time that you, if you do nothing else, if you just sell that property, you are required to pay capital gains tax on the sale of that property if you do nothing else. And when I say nothing else, I'm talking about if you try to exchange it or installment sale. I mean, if it's just a straight sale, if I have a house that I've been renting out for a bunch of years 
And I turn around and say, you know, I'm getting sick and tired of being a landlord. I want to get rid of the house. I put it on the market and I sell it. As soon as I sell that house, what's going to end up having is I'm going to owe the income tax or the capital gains tax in that year. And I'm going to have to pay it all in that year. And the way that the capital gains tax works is the fact that, remember, what's happening is, is you have to take, and I'll just talk about this in a broad brush stroke, you take the sales price of the house, okay? So, for example, you may sell a house for, say, $500,000. You may find out when you get ready to sell that house there's going to be some expenses that you have to pay in order to get rid of it, to sell it. Some of those expenses you have to pay might be, uh, you know, like a brokerage commission. You may have to pay escrow fees, title fees. Uh, you may have to pay uh, appraisal fees. You may have termite work that's done. There's a lot of fees that are associated with selling the house. But let's say you sold it for $500,000. And let's say the expenses for you to get rid of the house happens to be it costs you roughly in the neighborhood of about $50,000 to get rid of it. That's in brokerage commissions. In other words, real estate agent commissions, you had to pay that. So that means that you had $500,000, it cost you $50,000 to get rid of it. Now you had an adjusted price of $450,000. That's what you have to, what you have, you know, what your adjusted sales price is. Now before you calculate the gain, what you have to do is you have to then be able to take away that depreciation. Now remember how I had said that every year what you're doing is you're writing off this depreciation. And that what that depreciation is, is it's taking what the cost was of you buying the property, and every year you're writing off so much money. And what you're finding is if you've owned the property for a long period of time, your basis in that property has gone down fairly substantially. So you could maybe find out when you initially bought the house, maybe you paid, you know, maybe $100,000 for it. You've owned it for the last 15 years. You've written down the cost of it by maybe... Uh, I don't know, $25,000. So now what you have to do is you have to take that adjusted price, which was $450, and you have to take away from that the basis, which is what you acquired the property for. And that happens to be what the gain is. And let me see if I can draw a little picture here for you on that. If I can get a piece of paper here working, because it looks like I have a couple people maybe that might be a little confused on that. And I'm not sure... If I have this marker, I don't think is working too well here. So I'm going to try to do this in pen. Let's say, for example, I had, I had, and I'm going to have to go over here to do this, that I have a sales price, sales price, and I wish I had a bigger marker. Let me just check here. I mean, I'm sorry? Oh, okay. Oh, it's on its way. Oh, somebody took off the cap off the marker. That's the problem. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so we'll start over again. We had a sales price, sales price, price of $500,000. That means that that's the price. Maybe I had it on the market, you know, for five fifty or five seventy-five, and we finally negotiated. That happens to be the price that we finally agreed on that we're going to sell the house for. What's happened from there is now I have some sales expenses. Now, I'm just going to kind of lump this together, but those sales expenses could be in the neighborhood of like a brokerage commission. For example, a brokerage commission on a $500,000 house, 6% of that is going to be $30,000. 6 times 5 is 30. And 
and I may have escrow fees, title fees, whatever. But I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to say, you know, as a rough estimate, I've spent about 10% of that to sell the house. So that's going to be $50,000 when I add up all those expenses. What's going to happen is I'm going to end up with an adjusted price of $450,000. Okay? Now, the one thing that I'm not going to be calculating in here is I don't care how much money I owe. It makes no difference about how much what the loan amount is in this particular case. It just means that, you know, that that's what the sales price is or, you know, what I have to pay. Now, what's going to happen here is now from here I have to figure out what my gain is going to be. And just like anything else, when you buy something, for you to figure out what your gain is or what your profit is, you have to take, okay, how much did I pay for it and what did I sell it for? So, for example, if I bought something for $5 and sold it for $10, I made a $5 profit, okay? So, let me give you an example of if we can kind of keep this in mind, and I'll go down here and I'll say, for example, I may have bought this property, I may have bought it, uh, purchase price, purchase, $400,000. I'm going to try to make these numbers as simple as I possibly can. And maybe when I sat down and I talked to my accountant and I talked to my real estate appraiser at that time, they said to me that I had, as a rough idea, that I had the land value was worth $25,000, okay? And based on that, what they did is they turned around and they said, okay, uh, what's going to happen is, is that your improvements are worth $75,000, Okay, that's what it works out to be, $75,000. That's what the value of the building is at the time that you acquired it. And I'm making this very, very simple. There's more to it than this. Now, maybe over the years that I've had it, maybe I've had it 10 or 15 years, and what I've done is I've written off capital things. Remember, that $75,000 now is the figure that I'm going to divide 27.5 years into. So let's say I've owned it for a number of years, and maybe I've depreciated it depreciated the building by, for example, uh, oh, let's say, for example, $20,000, okay? So what's going to happen here is that this happens to be worth 0005 is 5. So now the value of the building that I have has been depreciated down to $55,000. That's what it's been depreciated to. Now, when I get ready to sell it, what I do is I take the depreciated value plus the value of the land, which was $25,000, okay, and I add those two together. And this is 10, 5 and 2 is 7 and 1 is 8. That means that my value of the house at that time, in other words, my cost basis for, for, for these calculations is $80,000. I now take the $80,000 away from this adjusted price up here, 7 and uh, 3, that means that I have a capital gain, capital gain, that I'm going to have to pay taxes on of $370,000. That's what that means. That's a rough idea. Okay, so that's what I'm going to have to have, I'm going to apply my income taxes to. And unless I do something totally different than just a straight sale, I am going to have to pay the taxes on that this year. Not next year, this year. Which can end up being a very, very significant amount of money that one has to put out. 
So a lot of people may be sitting there and scratching their head and saying, is there some way, is there any way that I can sort of get out of this? You know, I'm going to have to pay a substantial amount of money in income taxes. Well, there are several ways, not several, but there are a couple different ways that they can do, you can do this, and I'm going to point out a couple of them. The first one, and oh, by the way, if you want to have a recap of something that we did, on page 398 gives you an example of something that is sort of like what I just did for you, okay? In this particular case, if you want to go through it on your own, this just shows you here what the cost basis or the purchase price was, the improvements. It's just walking you through the same sort of scenario, okay? But there are two of the major ways that I can get out of. Now, notice I said, and what we're doing is we're not getting out of paying the taxes. What we're doing is we're deferring them to some future date or we're reducing the impact of it. One of the ways that we can do this is by having what we call an installment sale. And what that amounts to in its most simplest point is to say, listen, I want to sell you the house, but don't give me all of the money this year. Let's spread it out over a number of years. And as an example, I may decide that I want to sell the house, I want to be out of the business, I'm going to retire in a couple of years, and what I'm going to do is when I sell it, and rather than taking all the money this year, I'm going to turn around and defer it because when I, after I retire, my income is going to go down enough that it's not going to be that big of an, as big of an impact as it is today. So let me read real quick what this is. It says, an installment sale is a sale of real, prop, real estate in which payments for the property extend over more than one calendar year. Installment sales are used to spread gain over two or more calendar years so that the entire gain is not taxed all in the first year. Our income tax system is a progressive, which means that the higher the income, the higher the income tax rate for the year. If a person can spread the gain over more than one calendar year, the same income may be taxed at a lower rate. Notice it said maybe. Okay? Who knows? They may retire and find out they make more money than they did when they worked. It says, by doing this, your seller avoids the disadvantages of paying for his or her entire gain in one year and thereby, thereby has a substantial savings in his or her income taxes. This method is usually used when selling large tracts of land held for a period of time or large buildings owned by one individual. Okay? You know, and so you're trying to find some way to spread that gain out. That's one of the ways that you can do it. And again, when you're dealing with this, we're only showing you simple examples. The IRS has a number of publications uh, that will help you in guiding you through this. Uh, for example, IRS Publication 523 covers the sale of a personal residence, and IRS Publication 527 deals with the sale of an investment piece of property, a rather small piece of property. And by the way, I believe I have links to those two publications on the uh, Your Class Blackboard website for this chapter. So anyway, that's the installment sale. The other way that we can do things is by doing something called an exchange. And the difference here is in an exchange, what we're basically doing is we are, we are making a decision that we do not want to get out of the real estate business. We want to stay in the real estate business. But for whatever reason, we've made a decision that we want to get rid of the property or this particular property. And the easiest way that I can explain how this works without making it very complicated is to say it's like taking the equity that you have in your existing investment property, your existing rental, and using that equity as a down payment on another piece of property. 
So, uh, for example, you may have owned a single-family home for a whole bunch of years for whatever reason. I mean, people end up owning homes, and they had no intention of ever doing it. I had a friend of mine that moved out of town and had a personal residence, and he was getting ready to sell it, and the market was tough to sell at that time. And he decided, he had called me up, and he says, what do you think I ought to do? And I said, well, you know, I've done pretty good just holding on to property, and he's held on to the property. He's owned it for a whole bunch of years. So, I mean, people end up owning property that maybe never want to do it. They just, by accident, they get into it. But anyway, if you own a piece of property and you say, you know what, it's about time now that uh, what I want to do is I want to now move up. I want to use that as, an, as a down payment on a small apartment house, okay, or maybe a couple houses. Again, I'm going to, now the key here is I'm going to stay in the business. I'm not getting out of the business. I'm staying in the real estate business. I just want to trade in. Another way to look at it is I'm going to trade in my property for another property, okay, and so, um, anyway, this is called the 1031 Tax Deferred or Simultaneous Exchange, okay? Now, what this essentially means is, is that you have got to hopefully find, you know, you would think about this in the beginning and you'd say, well, you mean to tell me that I actually have to go out and find somebody else that has the exact property that I want to buy? And those people are also interested in the exact property that I own, and we're going to switch. And you can say, at one time, that was the way it worked. But then as the years went by, you know, like anything else, people applied some common sense to it and said, you know, the chances of me finding somebody that wants to take my property over and me to, for them to have something I want is kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. So what they did is they said, you know what, we have to come up with a different method, and that's where we talk about something called the delayed exchange or a sometimes referred to as a, uh, as a stalker exchange. And essentially what that means is this in its most simplistic format, and again, this is simplistic, is that you would take your property, you would put it on the market, you would sell your property. What you would do is you would take the proceeds of that, and you do not touch that money. What you do is you identify a third entity, such as an escrow office, or an escrow that holds that money, that you don't control it. It's already identified that that money is going to be used for the next property. Now, you have, according to this, you have certain rules that you have to follow according to the Internal Revenue Service. For example, you have to, after you close the property, you have to f have another property identified that you're going to be moving that money into. Okay? In other words, the IRS is saying to you, listen, you can't dilly-dally. This is not going to you know, drag on for years. So you have a specific period of time in which you have to identify and start the process to acquire the next property. And then the whole entire transaction has to be completed normally within about 180 days. Again, this is something that you have to follow the rules very specifically. And if you violate the rules, what will happen is you can end up owing all the income taxes. You as an agent, how do you get involved in this? You get involved in this because of the fact either as a personal investor or because all of a sudden, you have a house or a small duplex or apartment house or something else for sale. You get a phone call, and what ends up happening is the agent on the other end of the phone call or maybe the client on the other end of the phone says to you, I, have, I am working with a tax-deferred exchange. I'm going to be coming out of an exchange, and I want to buy that property and use the money that's coming out of the exchange to pay for it. And you're going to go, you want to be able to say, what in the world are you talking about? What is an exchange? So the concept here is, is that you want to be knowledgeable at least to know what this is. And you may find out that your career, 
You may go for 5, 10, 15 years and never deal with anything called an exchange, and then all of a sudden someday somebody calls you up, and the next thing you know you're doing this exchange. So you want to know it exists. You want to know how it operates and how to get information on it. This is for investment property only. Go ahead. Hit the this is for investment property only. Yeah. You, have you pressed the button and hold yeah. it? Go ahead. One more time. This is for investment property only? Right. This is for investment property only. Okay, this is for investment property. This is property that you're going to be renting out is what it amounts to. Okay, so that's what that involves. Okay, and um, let me see what else we may have here that we need to make sure we cover. Um, another thing that you need to be aware of is, is something called a dealer. And let me just make sure that we're kind of clear on what this is. You know, a lot of times we look at these rules and these laws and we think that they're all in real estate, not realizing what's basically going on, you know, that, that, that we may be doing something that, the, that violates whatever this law is or the intent of the law, and we fall under a different category. Remember, when we talked about installment sales and we talked about tax-deferred exchanges, we were looking at that person as being an investor. By definition, an investor is somebody that buys property with the intention of holding onto it for a period of time to gain the value of the to gain to gain to make money by holding onto it through a series of depreciation, uh, through a series of appreciation, meaning it's going to go up in value, and by the fact that the rents that are going to come in are going to help to pay it down. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about an investor, somebody that's thinking long term. We also need to be careful of this thing called the dealer. A dealer property is, is the inventory of properties held primarily for sale to customers. Hence, it is frequently called inventory property as it is held as the dealer's stock and trade like merchandise that's on for sale on the, on the retail shelf. So in other words, if you're buying property, and where do you see this coming up? You see this coming up where you see people out of buying properties and fixing them up and selling them. These are people that are doing what we call flips. In other words, they're buying them, and that's their business. They buy them, fix them up, sell them. Buy them, fix them up, sell them. That's their business. That's how they make it. It's just like as if I was trying to make a living by buying old, uh, I don't know, washing machines, fixing them up, and selling them. I mean, my business is buying, fixing, and selling, okay? So it says here, what constitutes dealer property is often the subject of much controversy. Profits for sale of such property are taxed as ordinary income at the highest tax rate. And losses are treated as ordinary losses. During the holding period, the dealer is entitled to deductions for all expenses incurred on the property, except for depreciation allowances, unless the property also produces income or is held for such purposes. The key word here that you want to look for and just that you're aware of, and the reason why I bring this to people's attention is because there's been a lot of talk. I mean, if you go to the bookstore now and you look at a lot of the books that are for sale, they'll talk about buying and selling houses, buying and selling investment property. Uh, they'll talk about flipping houses. There's books that have been bought, uh, written about flipping uh, houses. The concept behind flipping is that you buy the property. It needs a lot of work. In fact, there are TV shows now about flipping. What it is is that um, uh, you, you buy the property. It needs a lot of work. Maybe it has a lot of termite damage. Maybe the roof needs to be replaced. In other words, it has some physical problems with it. Also adding to that the fact that not only maybe it has, if it's investment property like duplexes or fourplexes, it might be the type that not only has physical problems, but it has management problems. 
because the property is in such bad condition that you haven't been able to rent it out to anybody, so you're losing income. So you may very well say, you know what, that's a really good opportunity. What I'm going to do is I'm going to buy the house, I'm going to go over there during the week or on the weekends or at night or whatever, I'm going to fix it up and then I'm going to sell it. If you're identified as being somebody that does that, then that's your business. Whether that's your full-time occupation or part-time occupation, you are a dealer. Your, your, your business is earning and by buying, fixing up, and selling houses. You're not an investor, you're a dealer. So you want to make really clear about what kind of, you want to sit down and talk to your accountant again about this. You know, am I doing this as an investment? Am I doing this as a dealer? How am I doing it? Um, okay. I'm just looking for anything else that we need to be aware of. Uh, you are going to find out, uh, and I'm not sure whether this has it in here, but you are going to find out when you get ready to sell, get ready to sell a piece of property at the escrow office. What they're going to do is they're going to ask, you're going to have to fill out a form, and they're going to ask some questions. They're going to try to identify, is this a property that's your primary residence or is this an investment piece of property? If it's an investment piece of property, they have a requirement to withhold, like you do on a job, money to, it's identified for taxes. So as an example, if you work for the state of California, every time you get a paycheck, you get your gross pay minus taxes that are withheld, you know, for both the federal and the state government. Well, they're doing the same thing now with the sale of property. And the reason why is what they don't want to do is have you turn around and sell the property and all of a sudden, when it comes time to pay the income taxes, which could be maybe fairly substantial, you go, well, I spent all that money on a vacation. I don't have any money. And what the government is doing is coming back and saying, no, when you sell that house, we want a certain amount of money held out or held aside to cover the income taxes. Then at the end of the year, what you're going to do when you file your income tax statement, you're going to turn around and, uh, you, know, you know, at that point in time, we'll figure out what your actual gain or loss happens to be or whether you had to pay taxes, but they're withholding now. So anyway, we're pretty close to the end of Show 21. Um, I recommend that this is a very serious chapter, that you really take a look at this, uh, go over this. It's a very, very important. Remember that if you are involved, you're not a person that is giving income tax advice, which you should be, though, is somebody that recognizes that something is going on and that you may need to tell your clients you need to call your accountant. Or if there's a property tax issue, we need to get a hold of the property tax assessor's office. Okay, That's important that you do that, but you're not in the position of giving advice. It's the accountant's job to do that. With that, I think we're pretty close to being done now for Show 21, and we'll see you back here the next time for the next chapter, which is going to be on investing. Thank you.